Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hello and welcome to Partly Political Broadcast, episode 47. Special Valentine's Day <clears throat> Sorry, I mean Special Valentine's Day Sexy Edition. I had, I had something in my throat. I'm Tina Diab and let me tell you that love is definitely in the air in my home this week. Or it could just be the high air pollution levels in London. Either way, I feel delightfully lightheaded and slightly sick. And this past week, if music is the food of love, then politics is definitely what love shits out after it's eaten. So join me on the political love boat that's constantly off course, U-turns far too often, and then steers off to the right, because it's going to be one damn sexy podcast. Article 50, sheets of grey, because everyone gets punished, even if they don't want it. MPs decided they love the Brexit bill just the way it is, and voted to make sure it never changes. Meaning that all they'll get now before we leave the EU to to make a mess all by ourselves will be some sort of vote on the final final deal. By that it could be that the choice is take it ooh sexy valentines or leave it which might be best if you don't know where it's been or agree with what it contains. MPs also block the bid to give EU citizens in the UK permanent residency after we Brexit. Presumably it's because we now have so little useful exports for global trade that we're having to send other people our useful hardworking EU citizens. It's now over to the Lords to see who loves EU the most. Meanwhile, the Conservatives decided to play hard to get when it comes to homes for refugee children, deciding to close the child refugee scheme early because there's nothing that shows real love on Valentine's like rejecting a lot of children in desperate need. Taking in just 350 minors instead of 3,000, Home Secretary and Chief Foreign Hater Amber Rudd said it was because they didn't want to incentivise child refugees to come to the UK. Sure, and maybe we should not bother to try and cure the Zika virus in case it incentivises people to get it. Zika. Health Secretary and haunted runner bean Jeremy Hunt continues to stop doctors and nurses from being a sexy game to one where both players just cry about how their workplace is underfunded. Hunt said that the NHS's performance is unacceptable, which is quite harsh from a man who's always disappointingly trying to fuck the health service. According to leaked data, A&E waiting times are at a record high, which is adversely less helpful for hospitals, even if they have lots and lots of patients. Get it? Puns, 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 sexy puns. Meanwhile, foreign patients will have to pay up front to be seen to. Ooh, for non-urgent cases. And across the pond in America, US President and annoying orange Donald Trump had a little rendezvous with Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe and praised his strong hands. That's love right there. We're probably only days away from comments on his deep eyes and raging boner. Then DJT, which is also, you know, as it's Valentine's, an acronym for designated Jiztal, took Shinzo Abe to a Trump-branded golf course because there's nothing more romantic than mixing official government business with your own business that you shouldn't have anything to do with anymore and pleasure. Oh, and as it's a Valentine's special, I've just received some love letters, so let me read out the first one. Get ready for some pure romance. Okay, so this is from Silver Vole, David Davis, who wants to send a message to Diane. He said he's sorry that he said he'd have to be blind to hug you, as it wasn't obvious that he isn't blind, considering he hasn't noticed he's driving the UK off a massive cliff edge. 
And anyway, love is blind, so maybe you and he are at the beginning of something beautiful. And by something beautiful, I think he means getting fired from his job for inappropriate comments. More love letters later. Let's have a nice political debate. Sorry about that. Uh, but thanks for listening to this week's Special Valentine's Day 60 of Partly Political Broadcast Podcast. Uh, listening numbers for the show keep going up, which is so very exciting. And if you are new to this show, uh, I promise not all episodes are this damn sexy. So do listen back to older episodes for some completely chaste political ramblings. Uh, also, if you are new and have missed all my awful jingles asking you to review the show on iTunes, then please consider yourselves uh, having spared the horror. And if you could please spend one minute giving a star rating or even a few words on iTunes, as it really does help encourage others to tune in. Uh, similarly, if you haven't already donated to the Patreon page and you'd like to contribute towards this happening, then please do head to patreon.com forward slash parpolbro. Mega, mega thanks to Naomi and Mark who donated this week. It's hugely appreciated. Um, I'm working on a few bonus things for donators, including bits of stand up and extra podcast bits um, and if any of you want to donate six billion dollars an episode then I'll do the special bonus uh, of stopping the podcast and going to live somewhere much warmer with your donation funds because the snow this week in London has been proper balls though of course uh, property here in London is so stupidly expensive even the snow can't settle here so at least there's that Oh, and again, um, apologies uh, for the terrible, terrible editing about 44 minutes into the last episode. Uh, I'd love to go all bad workmen and blame my tools, but it is entirely my fault. Um, I tend to sit all quiet and sort of listen back to the whole show after I've recorded it to check that I've edited it properly. Uh, you know, you think I'd be paying attention, but the problem is I get really easily distracted by pretty much anything. Uh, a fly, Twitter, uh, the endless possibilities of the cosmos, you know, just wondering if I'd be any good at being a spy, what name I'd give to a pet tiger it's Gordon I'd almost certainly call it Gordon you know the usual but this week's show should have absolutely no errors in it uh but it'll probably have some oh fuck sorry sorry it'll probably probably have some I don't know sorry it probably is ah balls I'll redo that but it'll probably have psych that was a joke fuck up yeah badass um anyway if you donate to the patreon i can spend a lot more time on the show and less time apologizing for making it shit uh, some quick plugs this week uh, before we crack on with the show. Uh, firstly, if you remember a few episodes back, I plugged the new online Netflix-style site for comedy shows, Next Up Comedy. Um, well, they've just added my 2014 show on there as well uh, as my last one. So if you fancy watching those, plus lots of other great shows by much funnier people, uh, then do head to nextupcomedy.com. And I believe the first month is free, and then it's £3.50 a month after that, but you can watch loads of brilliant hour shows, which is pretty good. Um, also, thanks very much to the small but perfectly formed bunch who came to my Leicester Comedy Show last week. Uh, if you didn't make it, uh, you dodged a half-written bullet as there is a lot of work to do on it, but it was nice to know that a few bits made sense. Uh, my second attempt at the new show is going to be at Angel Comedy at the Bill Murray Pub on February the 22nd in Islington. Uh, it is free, so if you are around at about 7pm in that area and fancy hearing me spout half-formed ideas, then please, please come along. So, this week, there is a look at what the whole Article 50 vote means. There's yet more bloody Trump stuff, and I chat with Leslie Hallam, who is a teaching fellow from Lancaster University, about how political campaigns are targeting us through social media. So after you've listened to that, don't forget to like and join the Parpol Bro Facebook group and the Parpol Bro Twitter account so that all the people monitoring it will know just how goddamn influential this show is. Mm. Oh, and I've done something different on this podcast, but more on that at the end of the show. Just keep your ears finely tuned. All right? All right? When the Lord Dubs Amendment, which yes, as I always say, sounds like some sort of amazing grime album. When the Lord Dubs Amendment was passed last year, it was presumed that it would mean the government would let 3,000 unaccompanied child refugees into the UK. But as revealed by the man that proves nominative determinism isn't a thing, Immigration Minister Robert Goodwill, the scheme is going to be closed after only 350 children have arrived. That's not even a misplaced decimal point of a mistake, is it? Aside from bringing in a nationwide policy to actively take candy from babies, willingly not helping children who are at risk of abuse from traffickers or homelessness is pretty much the very worst thing you can promise to do and then not do. Now, the figure of 3,000 wasn't actually included in the amendment to the Immigration Act, but back when he was Prime Minister with his face like an upset balloon, David Cameron said they'd take 3,000 children in several times on record. Now, of course, we've all realised that the only thing Dave could ever commit to seeing through was tax avoidance and resigning. 
The government have also ended an arrangement to bring over unaccompanied refugee children who have family in the UK because, hey, why not go full-on evil? They may as well use all the money they've saved on not bringing kids over to commission an army of flying monkeys. Home Secretary Amber Rudd said that overall the UK have taken in 8,000 refugee children via other schemes. And so why bother with more, eh? Why would you help more children? Rudd reckons the scheme incentivises children to make dangerous journeys across Europe to come to the UK because I'm sure that as they're all escaping a war-torn country and dealing with the loss of their parents or trying to find them, they were all busy googling British immigration schemes and thinking, oh, that looks alright, suppose we should have a go. Conservative MP Heidi Allen and MPs across all parties have secured a debate in the Commons on the 23rd of February about it and the excellent charity Help Refugees, who I love and support uh, a lot, uh, and Citizens UK have taken a case to the High Court about it, so there is a chance it's going to be overturned. Of course, by then, all those kids might have lost the incentive to bother, as they'll clearly have been distracted by something on YouTube, some sweets, or, you know, the destruction of their homeland. Kids, eh? What are they like? In further, the government hates kids news. Budget cuts of up to 97% in some areas mean that a lot of public parks could end up less parks and rec and more parks and wrecked. No, I'm not sorry. The cuts could mean shorter opening hours, playgrounds being removed and public toilets being shut, as well as less staff to prevent litter, rats or vandalism. As you know, parks are important places for people to not feel like they're trapped in a concrete wasteland, spread hay fever, give teenagers a place to loiter in without intent, a great place to point and laugh at idiots falling off skateboards, and for ducks to hold their AGMs. But despite their importance in a community, local councils have no statutory duty to maintain them. With so many other cuts to local councils and so many other areas they need to provide for on a lesser budget, a report by the Commons Community and Local Government Committee said that the government have to help councils find innovative ways of managing parks. And I've got an idea for them. Why not move all local council offices to the park? Yeah? In the summer, they can sit outside. In the winter, they can use the weird cafe that still sells crisps everywhere else stopped selling in the 80s. Failing that, they could just spend a day picking up all the litter and dog shit from their local park and post it all to the House of Commons until they start funding local councils properly again. Well, they'll have to do something because otherwise England's urban green areas will be less blurs part life and more tracks 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 8, 9, 10, 11 and 12 on their shittiest album, Leisure. Health Secretary Jeremy Hunt has said that there's no excuse for some of the problems the NHS is currently having to deal with. He then followed it up with tons of excuses as to why the government haven't done anything about it entirely disproving his point. A&E waiting times are at their lowest since the four-hour target was introduced in 2004. There's huge bed shortages and more and more cancelled operations and appointments. Why? Well, Prime Minister Theresa May reckons her government have put record funding into the NHS, but she failed to point out it must be the record for the smallest amount ever spent, and it's currently at an annual rate of 1.1%, which is the lowest since 1955. It's also partly to do with a population that's living longer, though to be fair, if our health service standards drop any lower, it should fix that problem pretty quickly. It's all going to be okay though, as Jeremy Hunt popped over to the US last week to speak at the Patient Safety Movement 5th Annual Summit, where I'm fairly sure that aside from schmoozing with some very big private health companies, he must have given a wonderful speech about how the best way to achieve patient safety is to not hire him as a fucking health secretary. Meanwhile, as of April, hospitals in England will have to charge overseas patients upfront for any non-urgent care. Because the best way to help reduce those overlong waiting times is to get doctors to have to faff through your patient's proof of ID and then bust out the chip and pin before they can pop out your cataract. And lastly, Surrey Council was planning a poll to ask its residents if they'd accept a 15% council tax rise to pay for local social care. But then they unexpectedly dropped the poll. Labour leader and Quentin Blake drawing Jeremy Corbyn confronted Theresa May at Prime Minister's questions with a series of leaked texts to Nick Forbes, the Labour leader of Newcastle Council, from the Surrey Council leader David Hodge, where he discussed a memorandum of understanding between them and the government, wanting to kill it off and all in all seemed to be accepting some sort of sweetheart deal in order to pull the poll. Either that or he's really, really formal about terrible one-night stands. The referendum was going to be used by many social care organisations to raise awareness on a lack of funding. It looks like social care in England is going to be lacking £2.6 billion that it desperately needs by 2020. And while getting Surrey to provide social care for social care was very unlikely, it really would have helped point out how in need the sector is. It's been suggested that Hodge was told Surrey could be some sort of pilot scheme, being allowed to keep all its business rates from 2018 to donate to its own social care programme. Theresa May's current policy is to let all councils do this from 2020 and stop all central government grants as a result, except certain councils get very, very little from their business rates, so they'd be in even more trouble than they already are, so really it's a plan that only favours Tory councils. 
So now, no referendum to raise awareness and a possible deal that will especially ruin parts of Northern England. I have no idea how Nick Forbes didn't just send back tons of smiling poo emojis to send Surrey Council into a terrible panic. If you were to study my mostly underused Facebook page to work out how to advertise things to me, you'd come up with a profile of someone who only likes things because a shitty competition says I have to, or other comedians because it's not like audiences will ever be bothered to do that for us. Which is probably why, as I look at Facebook right now, I have an advert for a seminar on how to use social media properly on my front page. Fair play, Facebook. Fair play. But if you spend five minutes googling Cambridge Analytica, you'll find a number of recent articles about a British company who say they helped Donald Trump win the election by analysing data on the American electorate. By looking at their likes, their information and how many times they swore when they checked an ex's profile and saw they were having a much better life than they are. Okay, not that last one. But using all that, they profiled voters into groups and targeted campaigns at them that focused on their concerns. How much did it work? Well, it's hard to say, and not because it's a complicated or unusual word. But Cambridge Analytica worked for Trump and the Leave EU group during the Brexit campaign, and so, so far, they've not picked a losing side. Or rather, they may have stopped them from being losing sides. So how important are psychometrics? That's what it's called, even though it sounds like the name for how a serial killer might measure things. Well, that's four severed toes long. Thanks, Dennis Nilsson. Sorry, not sorry. But yes, are psychometrics important? Do they definitely work? And will I end up changing my voting habits if UKIP posts adverts on my wall about how voting for them will stop a duck from watching me somehow, somewhere, because I thought it'd be funny to like a page on anatidophobia? This week, I spoke to Leslie Hallam, Programme Director of the Psychology of Advertising course at Lancaster University, who also advises politicians and businesses on advertising and brand development. And considering how quickly I found him when searching for experts on this subject, he obviously knows how to promote himself well, so I thought he'd be the right man to talk to. Here's Leslie. So, hi Leslie. Um, Thanks very much for talking with me. First question, uh, probably very obvious for you, but not at all for me or the listeners. Um, What exactly are psychometrics? Okay, so um, the the clue is in the word itself, I guess. Um, Psycho and metrics. Metrics simply means um, applying a a measure. Um, And psycho refers, in this case, to psychology. So the origin of psychometrics, I guess, is middle of last century um, and a little bit earlier. Um, Really looking at ways of measuring personality traits um, so that um, predictions could be made about um, future behaviours that, that are not measured. Uh, if you ask a question uh, about someone about their preferences uh, and you find that there's a whole cluster of people answering in a certain way that then go on to show a certain behaviour, uh, you, can, you can make some uh, imputations about the correlation between what they're saying and why they're saying it and what they will subsequently do. And it's become incredibly sophisticated uh, in the last uh, 20 years or so uh, as a discipline. Uh, it used to be kind of fairly broad brush stroke stuff like introversion, extroversion, uh, and some, some measure of creativity. But the last 20 years has seen, um, along with uh, increasing use of dig- digital technology in this area, uh, some really sophisticated way- ways of accessing what are essentially proxy measures. So you're not really that, that interested in whether people want to go to a a stay at home or go to a boring party, what you're interested in is what that means in terms of what they will do subsequently. And in in the context of advertising, of course, and then commerce, what they will do in terms of buying your brand or or not. Sure. And because I'm guessing you said it started in the last century. So uh, what, what were the methods then? Because obviously they've changed quite a lot now, as you said, with the internet, it's got to be quite a different field. It's, it's very different, <clears throat> excuse me, as I say, much more sophisticated. Um, it used to be pen and paper exercises. So you give people um, 300 questions uh, on a, a sheet of paper and they go through them assiduously. And you would hope honestly, um, and that was one of the, the early uh, flaws with the whole approach, people weren't necessarily honest. And some of the questions, if they were quite intrusive, um, people would avoid them or answer uh, in a more socially acceptable way. If you're asking about their sexuality, for instance, um, if, if your uh, particular sexual orientation is not supported by the culture in which you live, then you might well not tell the truth about that. Um, similarly, when they, the instruments uh, are being used for uh, predicting people's performance on, on, um, in a work situation where you're using it for recruiting people with certain traits, 
very often you can you can tell from the questions that are asked um, what's what's been um, assayed. And if you are aware, for instance, that uh, if you're working in an industry like petrochemicals uh, engineering, where they'd like you to be um, a, a low risk taker, um, and you're asked a, a whole bunch of questions about taking risks, it's fairly easy to to game the system and to understand what uh, the consequences of a particular answer will be. Um, so the early tests, and you know, in some cases still ongoing tests, can be gamed quite successfully by people to get the answer that they, they feel that is most appropriate. I think the thing that's happened in the last um, 10 or 20 years is um, a more covert approach to determining what your answers would be. So they're not asking you questions directly, they're looking at other measures, um, and particularly online measures, um, and what your, your behavior is on, in social media, and using those as the means of predicting what your personality traits will be and therefore what your behavior will be in a, a even situation. So I, I guess previously people knew they were being tested or asked these questions, whereas now they might not know in the same way. Yes, exactly that. And, and does that, I mean, how accurate is it? Does does this method work? I mean, it, and, and again, I know you said sort of previously people weren't being honest, but I guess with, if you're monitoring people's social media, they're going to like what they like on Facebook and they're going to put, you know, quite, I suppose, personal things on there. So does that mean that, that, that are you able to get quite accurate results from that? Um, it's, it's very hard to predict exactly how accurate these things are. Um, I would think they, they, the, the um, issue of um, people gaming the system um, is, is more or less eliminated in those circumstances. Um, however, these are always proxy measures. So you're not actually measuring the behavior that you're interested in. You're, you're measuring a, a verbal or online behavior uh, that then you um, can correlate with other personality traits and other predictive behaviors. And that degree of correlation is not never perfect. Um, it's never 100%. So it's not cause and effect, in other words. What you're looking at is something that indicates that someone might behave this way in the future. And that's where I think the, the um, uncertainty of these approaches falls down a little bit. Um, when these um, instruments are used by commercial organizations that are trying to predict behavior, um, there's likely to be some uncertainty around the edges, uh, and that's fine. There would be for any um, any measures that, the, that anyone applies. Um, the difficulty, I think, is that these are not um, peer-reviewed publications uh, that you find the findings in. They are marketing documents very often. So, of course, they will turn the volume up on how successful they've been. Um, and inevitably, there'll be some inaccuracies in that, I think, um, not just because we live in a, a post-truth society, but because they are marketing people and uh, it's in their interests financially to do so. Sure. But I guess that there's obviously a reason. Uh, cause I'm assuming quite a lot of advertising companies are using this method now. And, and I know uh, even from my, my limited knowledge of it, you know, the adverts that relate to you pop up on your social media feed or on your Google searches uh, quite quickly. So um can you know them is there any measurement of of its effectiveness at all like you know there must be some proof that it is is worth doing well the the proof tends to be in the form of um organizations actually using it so they'll invest uh, an amount of money in it and if it appears to work for them with that particular measure uh, they may well advance that but if, if you can imagine you know what you're in a situation where you found a, a tool that is really powerful for you to sell more, I don't know, Mars bars or um, bars of chocolate, rather, um, you wouldn't want to necessarily tell your competitors that this is really successful. So uh, the, uh, for a very good reason, those results are not ever pub published. Um, they're never made in, into uh, anything the public can access uh, because there's a commercial advantage to be gained in keeping that to yourself. That's not to say for a moment that I'm, I'm casting any aspersions on, on the effectiveness of these techniques. Um, in, in a laboratory situation, of course, these things do work. If you target people with messages that appeal to them more powerfully because of their psychographics, because of their personality types, um, then you can you can demonstrate that uh, in a, a psychology experiment. Um, these are not experiments. These are population size um, interventions. So if it works in a, for a, a sample of 20 in a lab, of course, it's going to work uh, to, to some large degree uh, in a very large sample. 
So with that in mind, um, because one of the reasons, well, the main reason I wanted to speak to you is there's been a story in the press lately about uh, a company who used psychometrics uh, based mainly on Facebook, I think, uh, Facebook profiles. And they worked for the Leave EU group in the Brexit campaign, then for Ted Cruz and then Donald Trump in the US presidential campaigns. So sort of using the information we know about psychometrics, could it uh, actually change opinions of swing voters? Do you think that's something that's plausible? Oh, I think it's more than plausible. I think it's uh, almost certainly true that it can change opinions. And <clears throat> excuse me, I'd be surprised, given um, Cambridge Analytica um, and their level of sophistication, I'd be surprised if they weren't successful in, in what they've uh, undertaken. The degree to which they're successful, I think, um, it must have some question mark against it, because it's in their um, immediate financial interests to tag themselves as being um, influential in these these two quite you know, significant um, interventions in, in campaigns for future business. And I, I understand they're going into the commercial sector quite soon. So I think there needs to be some caution about interpreting what they're saying. But there's no doubt that if you um, apply these techniques um, assiduously, you will be successful in changing the minds of some people. Because, yeah, cause I think they, they were quite... Uh... As you said, they've both promoted that they're a successful company doing it. But I think they've also been quite candid at saying whether or not they had any effect on those elections, um, which I guess you've got to be quite careful in in, uh, in what you say about it. Well, I think it would be, in a way, um, you know, kind of, it, it depends upon a behavioural economics technique. If you overclaim, if you go out there and shout that you've done a really good job and this, you've been um, instrumental in, in these changes, people will challenge that. Um, and what you want to do is let, it, let people believe that something's happening and then they fill in the gaps themselves. It classically, in, in any advertising, um, if you put something into um, the foreground in someone's mind that's the, the core brand message, they look at it critically. Uh, and some people reject it. Some people might accept it. Um, most people, it just kind of hangs in the air there and doesn't go anywhere. What what advertising does, um, and increasingly we understand this, uh, is distracts you. You know, it says something which is kind of entertaining or there's a message over to the left field while it's actually um, feeding its real message in um, rather subconsciously, actually. And I think there's some of that about the uh, Cambridge Analytical approach too. So, so it would be the the way they were doing it would be what sort of popping, uh, based on who they think you are, they pop a different sort of message up on your feed, uh, let's say, and then that would uh, kind of persuade you to one way or the other, or persuade you to think a certain thing. Is that how it would work? I think um, the the persuasion model of advertising is um, increasingly seen as a bit old fashioned and a bit limited. Um, the the current view of advertising is not that it persuades you but rather um, it, it seduces you um, subconsciously. So it has a, an overt message, which you can kind of take or leave, um, but it had all the, the communications in, and I'm thinking here of filmic advertising in particular, which is a, you know, a, a big production business, all kinds of um, elements of semiology, which signal to your subconscious that, that these are the, the things that are really going on. You're never um, aware of them consciously, but they still still have a very powerful effect. So I think at the moment we're probably, um, in, in terms of the, the use of this kind of technique, we're probably somewhere where advertisers were back in the 50s with regard to using TV uh, to influence people. It was very unsophisticated. We had, you know, you put a jingle on there, um, and if, as long as people could sing along with it, and you had a brand message on, and they could remember the brand, you know, Pepsodent, toothpaste, or whatever it was, that was seen as a good job. And it was seen as a good job because what had gone before was so unsophisticated and so, um, lacked so power, uh, sorry, lacked so much power that that was a, a big step forward. Um, at the moment, we're still in that kind of Wild West situation where actually this, there are some really powerful techniques uh, in play here, but they're not being used very effectively. So trying to persuade people by simply telling them something that seems to chime with um, their, their psychographics, their personality type, is a very unsophisticated way of using this. I think if you combine what, what's um, evolved in terms of TV and film advertising over the last 30, 40, 50 years um, with the kind of uh, the psychographic targeting 
that becomes really sophisticated and that becomes really powerful. And I think um, that will happen very quickly. We're, you know, we're on a, an accelerating stage with this uh, use of this technology. Whether we should fear it or not, um, it's another matter. I think legislation will struggle to keep up with this, I think, in the early days, but hopefully we'll kind of um, see a, a balance out of, of um, opposing forces here. I think what's happened at the moment is that the, the Brexit uh, campaign and the Trump campaign um, uh, perhaps will be seen as being exploitative of people, um, but I don't think it's any more exploitative than any other type of advertising. It's simply more effective because they've got better tools and are using better Sure. It's, well, two two questions on that. I suppose because I, I, as a personal thing, I suddenly worry. How do I even know if it, if it's happening to me? If things are being targeted to me, um, you know, it's it's something uh, I guess many wouldn't necessarily be even aware of. And then taking that on board, do you think that it's right to be using this in political campaigns? And is that uh, is that morally okay? Is it you know? Or I mean. Are we sure that it makes any sort of difference anyway? I mean, Brexit and Trump say that it probably has. Um, well, to, to work in reverse, I'm, I'm sure it's made a difference. Absolutely sure it's made a difference. Um, how much difference is, is hard to quantify, uh, not having seen anything of, of what they've used and how they've targeted people. Um, but it will make a difference. Whether it should be allowed... Um, it's a very big moral question. I mean, I think advertising... It needs to have some controls placed upon it, and any advertising um, has the power. One of the things, you know, one of the, the things I do, uh, apart from um, lecture, uh, is um, qualitative research. And almost every focus group I've ever conducted, and it's it's must be tens of thousands by now. I've been doing this thirty odd years. Um, people will say, if you talk about advertising, oh, it doesn't affect me. Well, you know, people spend a huge amount, huge, huge amount of money on this stuff worldwide and of course it affects you um, but we, we we're not aware of it and we think we have some control over whether we accept or reject those messages it's simply not the case um, advertising at the moment is incredibly sophisticated um, and does have an impact on our uh, decision making about um, any area that it, it targets um, and while we kind of tend to think about it as you know a commercial uh, enterprise and it, it largely is um, politics, of course, is increasingly um, reliant on changing people's views, and this is one way of, of affecting that. And it certainly works. Um, whether it should be more constrained or not is a kind of matter above my pay grade, to be honest. I think um, there are always going to be people want to put limits on it, and other people that are more free market about it. Yeah, and I mean, and I suppose from a sort of uh, a politics point of view, it's makes sense for parties to be doing it to persuade people to 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 get votes for them or, or to get people towards their their way of thinking and I, um uh, and I know you you sort of said uh, before when I was emailing that you've worked with various political parties before so do you think this is now the future of how politics is going to campaign you know is this going to replace sort of door to door canvassing and and uh, actual people contact do you think it's all going to go off social media and, and and psychometrics um i'd be i'd be Sorry to see it be exclusively um, social media and psychometrics. I think there's a real place for um, having a relationship with human beings in this because these are people that represent you and your views and your interests. Um, and if you're simply getting um, third-party targeted messages, uh, it, it kind of takes – I think it's, it's slightly anti-democratic uh, to, to take that, that view of it. Um, whether it will or not, just because my view uh, is that I don't know. I'd, I'd like to think it wouldn't. Um, however, you have to bear in mind that politicians, you know, they're often portrayed, especially in the, the current um, media situation we're in, uh, as being people who are uh, in it for their own interests only and want to enrich their, their mates, um, which may be true of some governments and possibly the current one um, has more about it than, than um, previous ones. But their political positions and um, a lot of politicians that I've, I've met actually care about doing the right thing by people. Now, they're not there just to make themselves rich or their friends rich. They're there because they want to make a difference by having uh, an influence about how the country is run, how the country is, is, is governed. So they're doing it for very good reasons. And one of the things I'm uh, also involved in increasingly is working in the third sector. 
And it's a similar issue. The people have really good motivations and um, want to do good in the world. Um, and at the same time, you know, for, uh, there's been lots of scandals recently about third sector organizations using slightly unethical methods of fundraising um, and can damage people by doing that. So there is a, a, a lively debate, I think, to be had about what kind of uh, methods you should employ and how effective they are if, you're, if you see your ends as being good. Of course, the trouble is that all politicians, to some extent, see their ends as being good, whether it's about doing good for the majority of people or doing good for a narrow band of, of um, compatriots. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. We'll be back with Leslie in a minute, but first, I've got another love letter here for this special so let me read it out. This is from Teresa M. And she wants Will, of the people, to know that she will do absolutely anything for him, no matter what her friends, family, or all the other people think. Oh, that's really cute. She says she'd ruin an entire nation for you, Will, and she hopes to plan the rest of her life with you, only she doesn't have a clue what that plan is. You guys, that made me wretch in my mouth just a little bit. Wretched If you're in the unfortunate position of being in a difficult relationship this Valentine's, just think about how no matter the extent you argue and bicker with your partner, you'll still get along 6,000 times better than Labour, a party with more divisions than the Football League. 52 Labour MPs defied Corbyn's whip last week, which sounds a lot like some sort of lion tamer circus trick, but is actually far more a bunch of clowns tripping each other up. These 52 voted against passing Article 50 as it is, despite Jezza's calls to vote for it, and Clive Lewis resigned from the Shadow Cabinet as a result. Lewis said he voted against Article 50 as he thought it'd harm his constituency of Norwich South, and his resignation now means that Corbyn's frontbench has had more people prematurely leave their seats than the Take That musical. But Corbyn's whip was a zero-sum game if the game was one where no one could ever win anything and everyone loses. Like Operation, but you're all wearing boxing gloves. I mean, 94% of Labour MPs campaigned for Remain, but two-thirds of Labour's constituencies voted Leave. So really, the only way for Corbyn to please all sides would have been for him to travel back in time somehow and tell the past version of himself and Labour to do a much, much better job in 2015. Or, you know, for him to suddenly keel over and die. But aside from that, what's he going to do? The Stoke-on-Trent election is next week, and that is a largely Leave area with a very Remain Labour MP just resigning, Tristram Hunt. So for Labour to keep that seat, they have to play to what Stoke citizens actually want. Though Brexit may cause Stoke to lose £157 million of EU funding up to 2020, so maybe they haven't really thought through what they want, or perhaps there's just a growing nihilism trend in Stoke and they all just want an MP who's going to do absolutely nothing, in which case Paul Nuttall is definitely in with a chance. Overall, 494 MPs voted to pass Article 50 without 
any amendments against 122, meaning that there was no to a second referendum, a no to giving security to EU citizens resident in the UK, a no to giving a shit about what Gibraltar think, and a no to treating the European Nuclear Research Agency as a separate issue because it's pointless when we're already having a total nationwide meltdown. So now it's up to the laws to decide whether or not they like the idea of charging forward without knowing if they're charging into a wall or several walls or a wall with big spikes on it way in front of us. The government have threatened the Lords that they have to do their patriotic duty, which really, for the Lords, just means they have to turn up. Uh, which really, to be fair to many of the Lords, they probably won't do. But to say that, to vote through the Article 50 Bill is patriotic duty, is completely nuts, as are threats that if they don't, the House of Lords might be abolished as a result. I mean, part of me thinks, hey, they should just block it and then get abolished, and then 2017 will turn out to be a pretty sweet year for democracy overall. After the Article 50 vote, Jeremy Corbyn tweeted, The real fight starts now, and rightly received a lot of mocking for it, because let's face it, it sounds quite a lot like the sort of quote a computer game end level boss would say before you defeat him by jumping over him while he's too busy signing apples. But in a way, the Article 50 bill was so vague that the real work on amendments and shaping Brexit does come now, especially when the Great Repeal Bill is yet to be debated, and MPs need to vote on which European laws we keep, and which ones we turn into UK laws, and which ones we don't keep, and how on earth we stop Theresa May scrapping all laws ever, and just making everyone poor work in chain gangs making her weird tartan suits or be killed. Scotland voted against triggering Brexit in Scottish Parliament, but were they to become independent, the EU says they'll have to get to the back of the queue to rejoin, and they'd probably have to have the Euro. Which would be a problem, because every time someone says Euro in a Scottish accent, it sounds like the sentence is going to end with an insult, and therefore could cause mass violence. You're a prick. So unless they go for that route and seek another independence referendum, they could be stuck with whatever shitty deal the rest of the UK get, whatever that will be. May says MPs will get a vote on the final deal, but that could just be a vote on whether to accept any old deal or not, which isn't really a choice. Especially when not accepting whatever May's deal is would mean leaving the EU and taking World Trade Organisation terms, which would mess up our borders, mean hella bad times for Northern Ireland and the Republic with their border, and altogether far more bad tariffs than talk talk. European Commissioner Jean-Claude Juncker has warned the UK not to try and play different EU countries against each other for trade deals because he's obviously seen Mean Girls and he's wise to that sly game and ain't no plastic. So we're moving forwards with Brexit if moving forwards is the correct term, which it definitely isn't. It's really odd how until 2015 it was thought that left-wing was progressive and right-wing was for staying the same. But now, in 2017, left-wingers want to keep things as they are and right-wingers want to move things. Just not forward. More sort of arse over tip backwards. Hey, I'm sure we'll look back at this in 2050 when Scotland is an independent country and part of the EU and it's delivering aid to the UK who only have a trade route with Papua New Guinea and we'll all laugh and we'll also cry. Well, we'll mostly just cry. And now, back to Leslie. Sure, and I, I suppose there's also something in that how... Uh, people communicate now you know I think um, as, as we mentioned earlier about honesty and things I think you, you might uh, get a far better gauge of what people are concerned about or worried about or, or wish you know to be changed if you are following their online uh, life rather than knocking on a door and speaking to them face to face you know I, I think people are probably less guarded um, so that I, I guess that might make a difference as well in in the information that needs to be gathered and used. I think so. I mean, we're, we're looking at a, a potential change in the way democracy works. Um, it's, it's, um, it hasn't worked for quite a, a number of years that people gather information on the doorstep and feed that back into their, their campaigns, not very effectively anyway. Um, and if we can find a way to um, assay what real people really want, um, as opposed to using it the way that I think perhaps um, the, it's positioned at, at the moment, where it's being purely manipulative. Um, it's also a way of finding out, you know, real things about people and really um, understanding what their uh, values are. Um, then I think there are, there are some good that, that could come of it. Um, but there are dangers with it. There are clearly um, areas where people could be um, unfairly um, manipulated, I think, um, by that, you know, it, it goes into a, a very complex ethical argument then, because you could argue the same thing about almost any advertising that um, goes beyond simply giving you basic information about where to buy this stuff and, and the price of it. Sure. I, I mean, it, there's something quite nice about actually having things 
sold to you that you might actually need as opposed to just, you know, having everything pushed at you. Um, but I mean, as so, you know, and uh, as as someone like yourself who, who researches and lectures in it, you know, are you quite guarded about what information you put online? You, you know, should people be uh, more restrictive in, in, in how much of themselves they, they put up in places? Or do you think this is do you think it's all OK? <laughs> No, I, I wouldn't say it's all okay. Um, I think there's a, there's a really interesting process within advertising um, in general. Each generation, and I, you know, as I say, I've been working in this this arena now for thirty five years or so. Each generation, each kind of um, yeah, new set of of consumers that comes along has a great deal more sophistication about. Um, how they're being targeted and the things that are being said and how to resist it uh, in terms of um, non-electronic advertising. And I've seen that happen. Uh, we've had uh, the birth of digital natives, as they're called. Um, they, are, they are almost immune to some of the, the stuff that um, my generation uh, certainly uh, lapped up in terms of TV advertising. Um, the, the media is so fractionated now that it doesn't have the same impact. This this new way of um, understanding what people are thinking, and more importantly, how to influence them within that context, I think, um, will also be eroded. Maybe not this generation, but it will be. These things don't exist forever. Um, they're not um, fundamentally ways to control people. Um, each generation will find its its own way of, of gaming the system of um, resisting uh, the the messages that are put out there. And I have absolutely no doubt. Apart from anything else, in, I don't know, 10 years' time, probably less than that because the, the rate of change is accelerating, it may be that the, the right-wing politicians kind of embrace this uh, more effectively and, and earlier uh, than anybody else. And after all, the devil always does have the best tunes. <laughs> but, but I think it won't be um, very long before um, there's a countervailing force in terms of uh, the opposition whatever that happens to be, and, you know, whether it's left-wing or less authoritarian, whichever dimension is, is um, pulling people apart on that, um, they'll also um, find out a way of embracing this and, and the sophistication this gives them. So you then have two countervailing forces, um, at least that in the marketplace, and we're only talking about politics. People will be swamped with this kind of information, this kind of uh, influence uh, across the board. Um, so suddenly, you know, it's not... You're the only person on TV uh, with a jingle and your brand name, Pepsodent, up there. Um, because that it was incredibly powerful in 1959 or whenever it was, because no one else was saying anything. Everything else was on radio. Um, same thing with the first um, colour ads on TV. You know, the, the first iteration of it is incredibly powerful because it's, it's shouting loudest. Uh, with the, the most interesting voice. And that's where we are at the moment. But it won't be long before lots of people are shouting and this won't be um, as powerful as it currently is. So it could just be a matter of time before your your Facebook is full of all political parties trying to get you and you're still as confused as you were in the first place. Well, sadly, that, that's likely the case. Um, and But to answer your other question, I think um, I'm, I'm very um, reticent about putting anything uh, in terms of personal data online. I have, I think I've got a Facebook page just about, but it, there's almost nothing on there. Uh, and I, I caution my kids to do the same. And interestingly, they caution me to do the same because um, there is even more to escape than I am in terms of what's um, what's happening to their data. Um, I think each each iteration will just increase in, in terms of sophistication and the technology that, that allows us to access this stuff. So we just keep on going up the stairs um, but it, it, it don't 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 be fooled for a moment that we will be in a totalitarian regime where um, total control is possible for anybody. I don't think that will be the case ever. That's well, very very pleased to hear that. Um, and I suppose to be fair, a lot of people, even if we were, probably wouldn't notice as they're too busy on Facebook anyway, um, <laughs> chatting away. Um, well. Uh, although you've just said, uh, obviously, maybe be a bit reticent about what you put online. Um, apart from yourself, are there any other people that uh, listeners should follow or check out and find out about online uh, if they are interested uh, in effects of psychometrics um, and issues like that? Um, yeah, a colleague of mine, um, Joseph T. Devlin, um, uh, is the head of experimental psychology at um, University of College London. Uh, his 
um, Twitter handle is at uh, neuro underscore boffin. Um, Joseph is, is working in neuromarketing. Um, so it's kind of one step um, beyond, I think, what we're talking about today. It's actually looking at the, the brain mechanisms that can be used to measure uh, behavior and therefore predict behavior. So psychometrics is a kind of external way of looking at it. You ask people what they think or you look at their immediate behavior um, in the environment. Neuromarketing is much more uh, looking at the, the way the brain structures um, predisposes toward um, certain um, behaviors. And if you can measure that, you can then make uh, firmer predictions in a much more objective way, I think, than we've been able to in the past. Uh, and I guess also, uh, if listeners are interested, they could find out uh, more about all of this from your course at Lancaster University. Yeah, um, sure. So I, I'm Programme Director on the Psychology of Advertising Master's course at uh, Lancaster. Um, it's a one-year course and primarily is, is um, there to take people with a, some degree of, of psychology in their background or marketing. Um, and um, most of our graduates become um, or enter into the, the advertising world uh, directly from that. Brilliant. Uh, well, hopefully they'll all join and then they can help promote my podcast in a more useful manner than I do. Um, there was one thing that we didn't cover that you might be interested in. Um, it's been in the news recently. The um, Admiral uh, situation. Uh, you try to use Facebook um, data. To... Oh, I didn't know about that. Yeah, well, you know, the the big insurance company, they were planning to um, launch a uh, product which took uh, behavioral data from Facebook uh, to determine the premium we pay. Of car insurance. So the idea, I think, was that if you had people that use lots of exclamation marks, then they would be seen as um, a bit nervy and a bit, you know, impetuous, and therefore they'd, they'd pay higher rates <laughs> of uh, insurance premium. Uh, Facebook have said they can't do it, basically, they won't let them do it. Uh, so it's been pulled for now. But it was an interesting and genuine approach. You know, it's, it was something they'd um, they got hold of. Uh, so it was based on exclamation mark use. Yes. Well, yeah, a whole bunch of um, sort of use of personal pronouns and stuff, which you know, one of the companies that spun off from Lancaster University um, have pioneered uh, work in that area. And you can predict quite a lot about people from their, the way they, they write on social media. Um, but yeah, Amber were taking it one step further and saying, well, these are the kind of people we want to uh, give low premiums to, i.e. insure, and these people are going to be high risk, so um, we'll, we'll charge them a lot more for it, um, which is a very interesting way. I mean, it's, it's the same thing we've been talking about, really, but using it much more directly um, to feed into a business process. <clears throat> Excuse me. I think the, the other thing that uh, is perhaps of, um, of value in this is... Although, you know, Cambridge Analytica uh, are saying we can find these groups of people right down to the individuals and their, their characteristics, I'm very doubtful that's actually very accurate because these are still correlations. But also, everybody can do that. Everybody can reach that level of, of data, um, big data. And increasingly, the, the issue is not the data you access, but what you do with it, and being creative about your use of data and understanding how to communicate effectively with those people once you've identified them is still a bit of an art form. And that's where advertising, I think, has always um, played its, its trump card and will continue to. It's not just being able to reach people, uh, no matter how sophisticated that is, it's how creatively you can reach people. Uh, and I, I mentioned to you uh, in my email, one of the companies that I, I do um, consultancy for, Mesh uh, Experience, um, play in exactly that area. They, they track real-time brand exposure, um, brand experiences. You know, in, every time anyone comes across a brand somewhere, they, they can track that. Um, and also the mood that people are in and what they're doing at the time. So if you're out having a drink, your exposure to that brand will be quite different to if you're seeing a home TV. Um, and... It's what you what you then do with those um, accumulations of big data and and use them creatively that will start to make a real difference. In the same way that advertising did, you know, back in the fifties and sixties. Um, if you think about the fifties ad versus what we have now, they're incredibly sophisticated. You know, they're, they're works of art now in comparison to um, early advertising, and this will will happen in this area as well, without doubt.
Wow. So it's 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 fascinating that you can have all that access. But if you if you're not, uh, I suppose you said creative enough or inventive enough with it, then it's it's not going to work. Well, indeed. Well, it will be less effective than someone else comes along with a more creative approach. So there's a kind of arms race going on all the time with regard to creativity. It's, well, it's nice to know that even sort of in amongst all of this, there's, creativity is still a key part. There's something, I think there's something quite reassuring about that. <laughs> yes, I, th- I think so too. I think, um, you know, it, we like to think of it as a science, but actually there's still a bit of art in there. Thanks to Leslie for that fascinating chat. I'm going to be using the phrase, the devil always does have the best shoes, as often as possible from now on. That is genuinely one of the best phrases I've ever heard. Um, you can find Leslie on Twitter at Leslie X Hallam. That's L-E-S-L-I-E-X-H-A-L-L-A-M. Uh, though he told me he doesn't really use Twitter much. Um, he's also a freelance consultant at Tangent Partnership who do qualitative research uh, advising both politicians and businesses. Um, so if you're interested in that, check it out. Uh, and also if you're a student interested in this sort of thing, uh, then the course he teaches and programmes is at Lancaster University. Uh, as always, if you have someone you'd like me to interview or a subject you'd like me to find someone to interview about, do drop me a line at Parpolbro on Twitter, Parpolbro Group on Facebook, or partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com. Uh, last week, I had a mix of people telling me how great the guest was and then some telling me how awful the guest was. Uh, well, look, if you didn't like them, tell me who I should be getting on the show instead. Otherwise, you're like one of those people who doesn't vote and then complains how the government are awful. And let's be fair, there's already one Russell Brand. <laughs> Okay, here's another love letter, and this was sent in via Twitter from Donald, and uh, it's all in capitals, but I'm not going to shout it, and it's to his daughter, which is, oh, it's really sweet, that's lovely, father's and daughter for Valentine's Day, and it just says, oh, oh no, I'm not reading that, that is disgusting. As always, there is simply too much to discuss with the past week's Trumping, so here's a quick run-through first, and I'll look at two particularly bad Trumps afterwards. Okay, so first up, uh, Donald Trump has backed down from challenging the Muslim ban bloc in the Supreme Court, even after he tweeted, see you in court, though maybe he was just expressing where he could observe the judges on a day-to-day basis. The fact that he's not challenging the bloc is great, but it looks instead like he'll just sign another executive order to push through pretty much the same thing. Sad. I envision him doing 200 of these until federal judges end up blocking him using certain words and he has to speak in even more broken sentences than he does, like some sort of weird carrot hulk. Second up, Trump has agreed to support the One China policy, which isn't about everyone in the States having just one singularly great bowl, but it does mean that he's working with China and not approaching Taiwan as its own country, despite his phone call to them a few months back. Chinese President Xi Jinping said that they had an extremely cordial phone conversation, orange cordial I bet, eh, eh, and that the two countries are capable of becoming good cooperative partners. Though first step is probably for Trump to stop pronouncing it, China. Third up, Trump has signed three executive orders to combat crime that looked mostly the same as ones Obama has already done. And they all say things like the US has opposition to certain international criminal cartels, which you'd kind of hope it did, though I'm sure there's a clause exempting Russian ones. Fourth up, a leaked draft suggests Big D Rump will suspend a 2010 rule that prevented US companies from funding conflict and human rights abuses in the Democratic Republic of Congo by purchasing conflict minerals. No, those aren't ones that make your gut a bit funny. Those are ones often used in computer chips that are mined in the DRC in mines controlled by militias. This won't really be surprising if Donald does that, not just because a leak said he would, but also because he probably has no idea that DRC is a place, let alone what goes on there, and as far as he's concerned, it'll be more business for the US. Fifth up, apparently Trump gave alternative blobfish Steve Bannon a senior security post by accident. I mean, sure, we all have accidents. Uh, Just the other day, I replied all to an email that I'd been BCC'd into without realising, but I'd never say had an accident where I'd been like midway through a text and then accidentally promoted a white supremacist to the USA's principal forum on national security and foreign policy. If you're having accidents that bad, maybe you shouldn't leave the fucking house. Sixth up, it turns out the depraved prune Rupert Murdoch was present at the interview between withered schoolboy Michael Gove and Trump. Not a big surprise given that Murdoch overlooks every awful thing like some sort of omnipresent lord of immorality, but Trump's daughter Ivanka also sat on the board of Murdoch's daughter's trust fund. Now you start to see why Trump only took questions from two US journalists on his conference in Japan, from the New York Post and Fox Business, both owned by Murdoch. 
Fuck's business genuinely sounds like some sort of term for vixen poop. But look, with Murdoch on site, Trump's fake news is going to be getting a lot more good press than it should. 7-Up is a tasty drink. Yum. Mm-mm. And 8-Up, Betsy Devos is now a Secretary of Education, despite her complete lack of experience in that field, or it seems by the recent Department of Education's misspelt tweets that she doesn't even have much of an education herself. It does seem, however, that despite all this and her plans to segregate schools so her poor kids really, really suffer, uh, she did donate over $900,000 to various members of the Senate and the ones that ended up confirming her, so she obviously paid attention in school when it came to learning how important big numbers are. Oh, and 9up, Trump met Canadian President Justin Trudeau and all the pictures of it look a lot like uh, when a prince arrives to kill a monster. Hmm. Okay, so particularly bad Trump thing, one the personal business stuff. Last week, the retailer Nordstrom stopped stocking Ivanka Trump's shoe brand, which is a sentence that's very hard to say. Those shoes are probably designed especially to stomp into security meetings you shouldn't be at. Uh, Nordstrom said the decision was poor sales, not political reasons, as Ivanka's shoes dropped 70% sales-wise just before the US election. But Trump still took to Twitter to complain about them, and then RT'd it from the POTUS account, potentially violating White House ethics rules. Then, Trump counsellor and stunt double for Zelda from the Terrorhawks, Kellyanne Conway, told people live on Fox News to go out and buy Ivanka's stuff. Which is definitely, definitely a violation of ethics, as it shows Trump really isn't distancing himself from his own or his family's own businesses. While the White House said Conway has been counselled for the error, they haven't learned anything from the incident as Trump spent the end of last week at his own Mar-a-Lago golf club with the Japanese Prime Minister, where his business profited from the visit. This also leads us to bad Trump thing number two. North Korea launched a missile last week as one tiny dictator wanted to scare the other. However, according to a Mar-a-Lago club member's Facebook posts, President Trump responded to it from within the country club, posing questions of security. Not only that, but the member then took pictures of the soldier who holds the American football with the nuclear codes in, and several members met and talked with Steve Bannon, which makes you slightly worried about what they're getting to chat to him about. Now, I'm not saying that a golf club isn't a safe place to speak about national security matters, but it definitely isn't, and has completely the wrong sort of bunkers for those sorts of issues. Trump's national security adviser Michael Flynn is currently under fire for discussing sanctions with a Russian ambassador just weeks before Trump's inauguration. And you can now see why recent reports say the National Security Agency themselves are apparently withholding intelligence from the White House because they don't think it's safe. They say the Kremlin has ears inside the White House, which is terrifying and also really macabre because I really hope they're still attached to people. I wouldn't put anything past that Putin. So the US has a president whose own security agency won't give intelligence to him as they believe it'll end up leaked to Russia and who is using his presidency to boost his own businesses. Well, I suppose America is meant to be the land of opportunity and they never really did specify whose. Hmm. The question of the week returns. Uh, this week I asked you what chat-up line or love poem would you send to which politicians and oh, you bunch of romantics had many, many a reply. At Al underscore Vim uh, said uh, to Trump, Hey, did you fall from heaven? Because it looks like you fell several thousand miles and landed on your face. Uh, it's really hard to read that without laughing. Um, at Hello Dave uh, said, Jeremy Hunt, how do I live thee? Let me count the ways. Done. Uh, at The War Llama uh, said uh, to Theresa May, roses are red, violets are blue. This poem doesn't work and neither does your government. Please call a general election. At Ethan D. Lawrence uh, says to David Cameron, Roses are red, films are talky, I'll let you tap me even though I'm not porky. At Daniel underscore Woodrow says uh, to Jeremy Hunt, Please don't break my heart for my hospital has no beds. The only way I would survive is to be heartless like you instead. Oh, burns. Um, at John Beck said, Corbyn is red, Teresa is blue. Quite sure now I'd vote for neither of you. Uh, at Rebecca Zadie Gamble uh, said this one is to any of the politicians uh, did it hurt when you fell from heaven or did the inner black hole where your humanity should be cushion the blow oh vicious uh, and this one is to Jeremy Hunt uh, you must be a thief because you stole my heart not my actual heart the one I've been waiting for on the NHS zing uh, and then uh, Paul Jenkins, who's a, a wonderful uh, poet has sent a proper full length one um, so uh, I'll put on my poetry voice 
Oh, Donald, my love, when I held your hand, when I kept my silence for your order so grand, when I asked you over to ask for a date, and the papers all said that now we're busy mates. Oh, Donald, my darling, let's do some trade, an Anglo-American love parade. Your ethics can hang on the doorknob all night, and the room will be filled with a nuclear light. A menage a trois with your Russian friend, may our special relationship never end. Oh, thanks, Paul, for that excellent proper poem. It has warmed my heart in that sort of heartburn way that makes me feel awful. Um, I have written a poem too, so I'll finish this off. Thank you very much for your entries. There'll be a new question next week. Hopefully we should have time for it again uh, as politics has got slightly quieter. Um, here's my poem. Labour are red. Tories are blue. Lib Dems are yellow, which suited them during the coalition years. Green are green and UKIP are purple, which is a mix of colours, even though they hate that. Yes, mister. And time for one last love letter. This is from David Hodge in Surrey to Nick, and it just says, Hey, sweetheart, just let me know how to stop care. Let me know what's acceptable. Surrey. No idea what that's about or why he's apologising, but I hope that means something to you, Nick. And that's all for this week's Special Valentine's Day Sexy of the Partly Political Broadcast. Uh, next week, the show is going to be back to its usual, completely devoid of love self. Uh, however, if you want to show PPB some love, uh, then please do give us a review on iTunes. Throw me some change at patreon.com forward slash parpolbro or just drop me a line at parpolbro on Twitter, parpolbro on Facebook or partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com with your sexy thoughts. Um, thanks very much to my other half at Pro Resting for providing some very sexy romantic vocals. Oh yeah, it's hot in our house. Oh, and did you notice the different thing? Did you? How sharp are your ears? This week's show was at a lower bitrate, meaning it was a bit easier to download. Ooh, yeah, only 128 thingamajigamies instead of 256 Uh, does that Has it made any difference? Have you heard anything I've said all show? Should I just do it at 1kbps next week and make it a whole hour of a low humming noise? Let me know and I'll reverse hear you all next week. This week's show was brought to you by the number two and a big letter O. Because, you know, oxygen is so goddamn sexy. It's a shame we haven't got any of it in this polluted, polluted London. Sexy, sexy oxygen. It's sexier than politics, except maybe the word election. Oh, election. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.